Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Big tech, bigger questions. Bezos, Cook, Zuckerberg and Pichai defending their firms in D.C. COVID cost, Boeing, GM and General Electric taking an earnings hit and a Kodak moment. The company's CEO talks Trump, fresh funding and reinvention. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you wherever you are joining us from in the world. Today, I can tell you we have a lot of F words. Steady, stay with me. We've got the Fed. Its policy statement is out later today. We've got the fangs too. the heads of Facebook, Apple, Amazon and Alphabet, as I mentioned there, appearing before a House antitrust hearing. And of course, we've got the fiscal drama playing out on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers still at odds while millions of Americans begin losing crucial benefits this week. The outlook may be fraught, but futures are higher. As you can see, guidance from the likes of Starbucks and chipmaker AMD helping offset yesterday's weakening results from McDonald's and 3M. We've also got shares of Boeing and GM higher pre-market too. A wider-than-expected $2.4 billion loss for Boeing, GM's loss narrower in fact, than feared, but revenues there missed too. We've got all the details coming up in the show. It's simply a tough time to be a car maker. Let's be clear to Japan now, where Nissan's stock plummeted more than 10% after the company warned of a record annual loss of $4.5 billion. The entire Japanese index weaker today, in fact. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, they're reporting its fourth straight quarter of falling growth down some 9% in the second quarter, a marked contrast. And I'll give it to you to China's 3.2% expansion in the same period. Tough to compare these two numbers, but the direction perhaps is important most of all. All this coming at a time when Hong Kong is battling a surge in COVID-19 cases. We'll be heading to Hong Kong for the latest shortly. For now, though, The new COVID communication reality will be at play in Washington today, too. The nation's biggest tech titans testifying via WebEx to the House Antitrust Subcommittee. Even with social distancing, expect Congress to bear its fangs at the fangs. All right, let's get more on this in the drivers. Doni O'Sullivan joins us now. Doni, great to have you with us. This is no ordinary hearing, let's be clear. In the past, when we've seen this kind of thing, it's been vaguely cringeworthy with lawmakers not really understanding what these tech titans do. This comes after a month of investigation. They may have fangs. Will it have bite? Yeah, absolutely. Today is going to be fascinating. It's really a historic uh, hearing, a historic day for Silicon Valley. The last time there was an antitrust hearing about this in, in the technology space was when Bill Gates appeared before Congress about 22 years ago. 
And you're right, this committee is very, very well briefed. Today really is sort of just the cherry on the top of an investigation that has been going on for months. Uh, the committee has picked up more than, I think, 1.5 million documents, has done hundreds of hours of interviews already. And Zucker, uh, the, the CEOs of Apple, uh, Facebook, and uh, Apple and Facebook, and um, excuse me, Julia, sorry, I'm after losing track, but the, the, the only CEO who has not appeared before Congress is Jeff Bezos. So while the other guys might have a bit of experience in this space, uh, the world's richest man, it's going to be fascinating to hear from him today. And we don't really see him uh, under pressure uh, in interviews a lot either. So it's really going to be quite interesting to see how Bezos uh, performs, Julia. Yeah, we've never seen him. We've never seen him in front of Congress. We rarely see him in interviews, too. And it was Google that was eluding you there. It's tough to keep track of all these names. At least I had it typed in front of me earlier. Amazon should come under scrutiny, though. Even just the last few weeks have seen the rise in Amazon's power. We've seen the need and the necessity of things like smartphones for Apple. The key question for these lawmakers is, do they help ultimately consumers and small businesses or do they hurt them? Because the defense that we're going to hear from these big shots is, look, we're actually net good for society. You need to promote American innovation, not restrict it. Absolutely. And unsurprisingly, we, you know, we've seen the opening testimony of some of these CEOs and they all make that point. They say that America is a better country because of them, that they are drivers of employment, etc. Look, I mean, I think what for each company, for Amazon, a lot of this, there will be questions about, you know, how it uses data from third party companies that sell on its website to then develop products or to acquire companies to sell products that could then undercut some of the independent retailers that sell on Amazon. When it comes to Apple, there's going to be a lot of questions about the App Store. And when it comes to Google, about the search ranking, that's obviously a big issue we've seen in Europe too. Um, And when it comes to Facebook, I guess perhaps the company that's under the most scrutiny here is obviously there'd be questions about their acquisitions of Instagram, of WhatsApp, and now Giphy. But, you know, I do think that today will go much further beyond just the sort of uh, merger and acquisition uh, questions to uh, really about the true power that companies, especially Facebook, have in speech and in the election here in the United States and the role they have at controlling what the public and voters see and do not see. So I think it's going to be a fascinating few hours. I think you're right. A lot of the people on this committee uh, are extremely well briefed, but no doubt we'll also see... Uh, a lot of partisan um, uh, questions too, uh, particularly after Donald Trump Jr. Uh, was briefly suspended from tweeting uh, on, on, on Twitter yesterday after sharing COVID-19 misinformation. Uh, so there'll be lots of those regular questions about, you know, anti perceived anti-conservative bias on the part of Silicon Valley. So it should be a, should be a fun few hours, not probably too fun for, for the CEOs though. Julia? Yeah, probably more fun than being there in person, actually. At least they've got a bit of distance due to uh, the COVID concerns, of course. They're sort of dialing in rather than anything else. Your points, though, are critical. Whichever way you look at this, is it too much power, ultimately, in too few hands? Doni, how do we go from here to lawmakers going, OK, we've got all this information now. Do we need to take action or don't we? Because there does seem to be Democrats and Republicans that are on board. It's a bipartisan effort here perhaps to regulate these, however that looks. 
Yeah, it's possible. I mean, look, there have now been different tech, tech hearings for a few years, especially since the 2016 election and Cambridge Analytica. And really, we've seen very little or no legislation, frankly, that really affects these companies in a major way. But it is a bipartisan issue that com- the, the, the Republicans and Democrats want to crack down on these companies, but sometimes they want to crack down on them in, in different ways. Uh, also, you know, an important role here is the role of the attorney generals in individual states many of which have individual investigations in each state into some of these companies around antitrust. Um, So, you know, I think it it is going to be a big leap from to go from this hearing and all these hearings to whether we actually see uh, new laws on the books. Um, And, you know, whether whether Republicans and Democrats come together on some issues around this, despite having uh, very different motivations for doing so, uh, well, that's going to be one of one of the big issues. I think that the lobbyists for all these four companies are going to be working very, very hard on uh, in the coming months. Julia, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned the lobbyists. Yes, a lot of pushback and working behind the scenes to prevent anything that really does have bite. Donny, great to have you with us. It's going to be a fascinating day. Donny O'Sullivan, there. Thank, thank you. you. All right, to Hong Kong now, which is on high alert. Chief Executive Carrie Lam warning the city is, quote, on the verge of a large-scale community outbreak of the virus. Meanwhile, mainland China reports the highest single-day jump since early April with more than 100 new coronavirus cases. Will Ripley is live in Hong Kong with all the details for us. Will, let's start in Hong Kong where you are. It's a dramatic phrase when we're hearing this from, from Carrie Lam. Give us context. What are we talking about in terms of outbreak numbers? What are we looking at? We're not seeing, Julia, an exponential explosion in terms of the daily infection rate. It's held steady for the last eight days at more than 100. Today it was 118. While that is obviously concerning, you have to put it in context. There are 7 million people who live here in Hong Kong and social distancing measures, the strictest so far this pandemic are now in effect here. You have restaurants closed completely for dine-in service. Mask wearing is mandatory whenever you step outside your home, basically, or you get a big fine. The beaches are closed. Uh, people can only gather in groups of two, even if you're out you know, exercising or you know, walking, having a coffee, only two people can be together at any one time. So the city is hoping that the numbers will continue to stabilize and then go down. But the concern is, is that a lot of these local cases and most of these 118 are are community spread. They still can't trace them. They don't know where they're coming from. And you have a healthcare system that every time you get a patient who's of a certain age or has a pre-existing condition, that takes up one more bed. And this city is really running low on beds. China has actually volunteered to come in and build a field hospital at the Expo Center near the airport, similar to one that they built in Wuhan. Uh, that could be open by early next month, and that would be for patients with you know, mild symptoms. Uh, the more serious uh, patients would need those, those precious beds at hospitals. Wow, that's interesting, Will. And just very quickly on that, what are people saying about the prospect of China lending help here? You know, people are just starting to hear about it. Uh, Obviously, the city uh, says that they requested China's assistance. Is this an attempt to use soft power to try to win over hearts and minds? We'll see if it works. I mean, there's certainly plenty of people here in Hong Kong who are happy to have to be a part of China. And then there are obviously, as we saw with the protests that are no longer happening in large part because of the pandemic, also the national security law. Many people aren't. Um, But we haven't heard a whole lot of chatter about it, Julia. China, by the way, 101 cases uh, reported today. That is the biggest number that they've had since April. 
Most of those cases in Xinjiang, which you might recognize because that's the home of the Uyghur Muslims, where China is accused of running essentially re-education camps, 89 of those 101 were in that uh, you know, far kind of Western province. But this does, uh, you know, this obviously is a concerning trend for China to have their biggest number since April, but 1.4 billion people there, 101 cases reported in the last 24 hours, Julia. Yeah, you know, our minds work exactly the same way, whether it's uh, China's help as far as Hong Kong is concerned, or the relative numbers here, 100 cases versus 1.4 billion population. Yes, Will Ripley, thank you so much for uh, that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Turning now to a CNN exclusive on what's being described as another Sputnik moment for Russia. Moscow says it's working to approve a coronavirus vaccine in less than two weeks. We're just learning there are plans for mass production this autumn. But the push for the vaccine so quickly is raising serious safety concerns at the same time. CNN's Matthew Chance joins us now from Moscow. This announcement took a lot of people, I think, by surprise. What do we know, Matthew, in terms of data, in terms of steps and process that are being followed and where they are in terms of phases here of of trialing this vaccine? Well, you're right, uh, Julia, first of all, I think it it has taken a lot of people off guard. But, you know, actually this uh, this production or this uh, move to approve the Russian vaccine has been in the pipeline for some time. Uh, what Russian officials confirmed to us yesterday is that the 10th of August, which is obviously not very long from now, is the date which they're aiming for. But it could be approved, they say, even before then. And so that's like quite staggering speed with which the Russians that have deployed vast resources in their state to try and develop a, a vaccine seem to have have got there. Of course, there's lots of scepticism about how effective this vaccine will be, how safe it will be. Uh, What the Russians say is that the reason it's got there so quickly is because the technology they've used to manufacture or to create this vaccine is technology they've used in the past successfully. They've got lots of clinical data on it. They've simply taken an old vaccine to, to, to simplify it. And to and to and adjusted it to make it relevant to coronavirus. That's what the Russians say. But of course, you can't sort of dismiss the whole idea that Russia has basically ignored the conventions when it comes to to human trials. I mean, the scientists that developed this vaccine in Russia, they were injecting it into themselves and their staff members before human trials even formally began. Then, you know, soldiers were used in the first round of testing, and we learned yesterday as well uh, that the the third phase of human trials, which is crucial because it it sort of looks at the overall safety and the overall effectiveness of of any vaccine. That will only be done in parallel to the inoculation or the vaccination of uh, people in vulnerable categories, particularly frontline uh, medical workers. So they're going to approve it and carry out the final phase of human trials sort of in parallel uh, with each other, which is sort of, you know, uh, uh, unprecedented, perhaps, or at least extremely um, uh, unusual. And of course, it's fueled this idea uh, that, that this virus may not be all it seems and may not be as effective as the Russians like to put across. I mean, the, part of the problem with that, just to answer the second part of your question, is that the data that the Russians have accumulated throughout the trials that they've done so far has not been made public. It's not been subject to peer review. I'm told you know, over the past 24 hours, that that's going to change by the first week of August. They're going to make these results public. They're going to publish them. They're going to open them to peer review. And so I expect there's going to be a lot of scrutiny here in Russia and around the world uh, to um, to see how effective those results have really been. That vaccine really is, Julia. Yeah, 
I mean, we have to wait and see what the data says, to your point, Matthew, exactly. But I can't help but remember that we've also had a conversation on this show about at least accusations of potential theft or at least trying to tap in and access information about vaccine research from, from other nations directed from Russia. Yes, I mean, this is, this is the other part of the, of the sort of concern and the scepticism that surrounds um, the, the progress that Russia says it's made with this vaccine. I mean, first of all, you've got enormous pressure from the Kremlin, political pressure. It sees this as a sort of prestige project. It wants to be, Putin wants to, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, he wants to be the first. He wants to be able to say, look, you know, Russia has stepped in, saved, saved the world from this, this global pandemic. And I think that's one of the drivers for them cutting corners in the way that they have. And then in addition, there have been these other allegations, which, you know, in fairness, have been categorically denied uh, by the Kremlin, that Russian spies have been hacking into research labs in the United States, in Canada and in Britain to try and steal, you know, research, you know, vaccine secrets. Now, whether or not that contributed um, to the uh, position that Russia is in now in terms of its vaccine, we don't know. Certainly the Russians say that it definitely hasn't contributed to it. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it, it adds to that sort of cloud of scepticism that hangs over uh, this apparent progress in the Russian vaccine. Yes, they want this to be, a, as you pointed out, a Sputnik moment. The question is, is it? We'll wait and see. The data matters. Matthew Chance in Moscow. Thank you so much for that. Now, the Hajj is underway in Mecca, but it's dramatically different this year. Muslims are circling their holiest site, wearing masks, walking along socially distant paths. Saudi Arabia is allowing only a tiny fraction of the usual number of participants because of the coronavirus pandemic. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, tales of a fabled manufacturer's earnings from Boeing's and General Motors and Kodak's chemical comeback We'll put you in the picture with the CEO. All coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we're still on target for a higher open this Wednesday on what could be a challenging day for investors. Let's call it that. We've got the Federal Reserve releasing its latest policy statement later today. Jay Powell and company certain to promise more monetary muscle if necessary, especially with so much uncertainty over the size of the next fiscal package coming from Congress. What does he have to say? We shall see. Meanwhile, fang stocks are higher pre-market. Little fear, it seems, ahead of a historic congressional antitrust hearing today featuring the heads of Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Alphabet. That said, take a look at the big swings in tech over the past four trading sessions alone. There's definite uncertainty, perhaps, over the path forward after the Nasdaq's spectacular 16% run-up so far this year. It could just be consolidation. Hey, this action, anything but normal. That we agree. A deluge of tech earnings comes out tomorrow after the closing bell too. Today, we've got results from two of America's most fabled manufacturers, Boeing and GM. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, what can you tell us? Well, it was a pretty miserable quarter, Julia, I think, by by any measure. And I think the question that you get from both of these companies, given that they saw prolonged production stoppages, huge drops off in demand, is, is this as bad as it's going to get was was the second quarter the, the worst that we're going to see during this pandemic. So let's take a look at, at Boeing to begin with. They reported a net loss of 2.4 billion. Revenues were down 
25% year on year. Bear in mind that even last year, things were not that great because of the 737 MAX, which continues to impact them. They only delivered Julia 20 aircraft during the quarter. That led to a 65% drop in commercial airplanes revenue, which is their biggest segment. So look, they are scaling back. They are preparing for a future where they have to be smaller. Production is coming down pretty much across all of their major uh, sort of aircraft lines, 737 uh, line that will go to 31 per month uh, in the 2022. That's a year behind what they had scheduled in the past quarter. Cuts for the 777, 777X, cuts for the, the 787. They confirmed as well that the 747, that production will end the iconic jumbo jet in 2022. And we know already that Boeing has announced a 10% uh, workforce reduction. That's about 16,000 jobs. In a letter to staff today, the CEO, David Calhoun, said that, that more could be coming as the, the demand continues to, to come down. They might have to reassess their workforce even further, Julia. And Claire, very quickly on GM as well. We knew it was going to be a devastating quarter in terms of sales. Also, cash burn for these concerning. Very quickly, give us the top lines here. Yeah, we knew it was bad. Sales were down 34% on the quarter. Having said that, it wasn't quite as bad as people had feared. They lost $800 million in the quarter. That was not as bad uh, as, as people worried about. And that, despite due to an eight-week production stoppage, eight weeks out of the 13 weeks uh, production was impacted. So they are saying, look, the business is resilient. We are used to uh, austerity and making cost cuts. Uh, and they believe they are positioned well going forward. Yeah, the question is what comes forward? Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. To Europe now, showing signs of getting a grip on coronavirus just as they were. Fresh outbreaks now sweeping across the continent. Germany seen a spike in cases. And in Britain, the Prime Minister says there are signs a second wave may be coming. Here in the United States, as the tally of coronavirus deaths approaches 150,000, the president had this to say. You can look at large portions of our country. It's, uh, it's corona-free. Now, as you can see, and I can give you a look, deaths are still increasing in 29 states. Meanwhile, much attention has also been paid to a doctor, one specific doctor among others, as we discussed on the show yesterday and again on Twitter on Monday night. She said that she's had tremendous success with hundreds of different patients, and I thought her voice was an important voice. He was talking about Stella Emanuel, a pediatrician and preacher from Houston. She's known for touting highly unconventional theories involving alien DNA, demons and the unproven drug hydroxychloroquine. This virus has a cure. It is called hydroxychloroquine, zinc and zitromax. I know you people want to talk about masks. Hello? You don't need masks. Wow, we've got a lot to discuss. Elizabeth Cohen joins us now from CNN Health. Elizabeth, always great to have you on the show. Let's just do a setup. Where are we in terms of cases, in terms of death rate, just in the United States? Let's hone in there. You know, the cases it continues to, the case numbers, sorry, Julia, continue to climb. We continue to have hotspots such as California, Florida, Texas. Many areas are suffering shortages of hospital beds, especially ICU beds. So this continues to be a problem. Now, the death rate, we have improved the death rate since the beginning of this outbreak because doctors have gotten better about learning how to treat these patients. But obviously, when you have so many, you know, more than 100,000 deaths, that still is obviously a huge issue. And there are forecasts that these deaths will continue and that it's not, it's, we're going in the wrong direction in the United States. That's probably the best way to put it. 
Yeah, the cleanest way to put it. The other question, and it keeps coming up and we have discussed it many times, hydroxychloroquine. I just want to play something very quickly. Dr. Fauci was asked about this yesterday. This is what he had to say. I go along with the with the FDA. The, 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 the overwhelming prevailing clinical trials that have looked at the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine have indicated that it is not effective in coronavirus disease. Elizabeth, the doctor that we were just playing earlier was saying, look, I've had hundreds of patients recover, talking about it as a cure. What does the data, the trials, the randomized data trials that we have tell us about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment, a cure, I use the word carefully, for COVID? It shows that it doesn't work. There have now been multiple random random, uh, clinical trials where people, some people were given hydroxychloroquine and others given a placebo, and they showed that hydroxychloroquine did not work to treat COVID or to prevent COVID. You know, in the beginning, we weren't sure, and that's why they did these trials. They did them in the UK, in the United States, and other places, and they showed over and over again that not only didn't they work, but that there seems to be the possibility that hydroxychloroquine actually hurt some people because hydroxychloroquine has been known for many years to have possible cardiac problems. Now, Julia, you brought up that critics say, wait a minute, I used it on my patients and it worked. Or look at this study over here. They used it on this group of patients and they got better. Julia, I'm going to bring you back to the chocolate chip cookie analogy that you and I have talked about many times. If you have a cold and I give you a chocolate chip cookie and a few days later you're better, you might say, oh, must have been that cookie. It wasn't the cookie. It's because most people get better. So the same thing with COVID. Obviously, people die from COVID, but most people do get better. You can't credit the hydroxychloroquine for getting them better. They might have gotten better all by themselves. That's why you do these randomized controlled clinical trials. You give some people hydroxychloroquine, you give some people a placebo, and you see if there's a difference. What they have shown is that there's not a difference. It is incredibly disingenuine for a doctor to say, I gave my patients hydroxychloroquine and look, they got better. Anybody, a third grader should know that that is incredibly false logic. Yeah, unless you have a control, you can't tell whether they would have recovered with or without a specific drug. And that's the bottom line. Right. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you very much. And thank you for Thanks. a reminder of my cookie. Thank you. All right, we're going to down to the market open. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are open for the third session today. And I can give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of price action. The Nasdaq, as you can see, outperforming up some seven tenths of one percent, taking back around half of yesterday's losses. We're awaiting the Federal Reserve's policy statement later today. Jay Powell's press conference, of course, too. What does he say about the economic outlook? Meanwhile, chipmaker AMD, one of the biggest gainers on the Nasdaq after raising its guidance right now, it's up more than 10%. We also hope to get an update on stimulus talks later today. The Democrats and the Republicans seemingly still far apart in the early innings of those negotiations. The bottom line is new aid may take a while to get to some needy Americans. 
Also in D.C., CEOs from four of the world's most powerful and influential tech companies will be the focus of a historic antitrust hearing, the first of its kind by the U.S. Congress in more than 20 years. The heads of Google parent Alphabet, Apple, Amazon and Facebook will face questions about their dominance of the tech economy. Claire Sebastian has all the details. When these four CEOs come before Congress, albeit remotely, it'll be hard to know who is the most powerful in the room. Google controls nearly all of the search market in the United States. Amazon controls nearly half of all online commerce in the United States. Facebook has approximately 2.7 billion monthly active users across its platforms. And finally, Apple is under increasing scrutiny for abusing its role as both a player and a referee in the App Store. A year-long congressional investigation is looking for ways to check that power in what experts say will require a new understanding of U.S. competition law. The major point of these hearings is to move away from a conception of competition law as focusing on the well-being of citizens as purchasers of goods and services and to adopt a broader conception that looks at the citizen as an employee, as a resident of a community, as a consumer of news. The four companies have all denied anti-competitive behavior. We do not use any uh, seller data uh, for to compete with them. Apple even commissioning a study last week that found its App Store commission rates were in line with others. Several have also voiced concerns that regulation might make them less competitive globally. I worry that if you regulate for the sake of regulating it, it has a lot of unintended consequences. Uh, you know, if you take a technology like artificial intelligence, you know, you know, it will have implications for our national security and, you know, and how or for, you know, other important areas of society. And yet, even as the COVID-19 pandemic has made these companies ever more essential and more valuable, they've been facing growing backlash. Protests over safety at Amazon and an advertiser boycott of Facebook over hate speech. I think they come into the hearing not with a halo, but with great concerns about exactly whose side they're on. And that should be a matter of concern. Again, you look at the mood of the Congress, you look at how Republicans join Democrats today in scolding these companies. Um, that's a combustible environment for the leading enterprises. The House investigation is expected to lead to a recommendation for new legislation, perhaps bringing greater scrutiny of tech acquisitions. Deals like Facebook's purchases of WhatsApp and Instagram and Google buying YouTube and Fitbit. It could also ramp up the pressure on other ongoing investigations. A delicate moment for these titans of tech. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. All right, let's talk this through. Scott Galloway is Professor of Marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. Scott, always great to have you on the show. You've already written the questions for these lawmakers, so they should be great when they perform today. But you say big tech's going to walk away the winner anyway. Why? Well, I think this is, I think just as most wars are won or lost before you step on the field, I think this confrontation has already been won because big tech showing up as a group means it'll be difficult to focus or go very deep on anyone. I think there's safety in numbers. Also, Julie, I don't think you can ignore that the remote nature of this hearing means that the most, you know, the odds for kind of an unscripted real moment that changes public view is less likely. I think it's easier for them to control the environment. And essentially, these companies are very good at delaying weapons of mass uh, distraction, and that is they'll play slow ball, they'll delay, 
And I think there's going to be different treatment of the four. And also, the, the antitrust concerns for Apple are much different than the antitrust concerns for Facebook. So one, demanding that they all testify together and also keeping it remote, I think it plays to the advantage of the big tech firms. Yeah, I'm trying to remember back in 2018 when Mark Zuckerberg testified and he said he'd get back to lawmakers, I think, 46 times, if not more. I'll get back to you. But why does public opinion matter and why does today and what they say actually matter if they've done a year of investigation to decide whether or not individually these companies need tackling? Well, every one of the people questioning them is up for re-election. And I think this is an opportunity for them to put forward some assertions after a lot of the work they've done that these firms are bad for the economy, bad for the tax base, uh, bad for our elections, bad for teen depression. And then they will get a crisp response from the American public. Effectively, what this is, is you know, no decisions are going to be made today, but they'll get a gauge on sentiment around one thing. And that is, a, a, as a congressperson, is my likelihood to claim power more likely if I, in fact, begin to go after these guys or put pressure on the DOJ or the FTC to begin antitrust action. To date, there have been very few elected representatives really take the time to, to develop the domain expertise and push for the breakup. Other than Senator Warren, it's difficult. No senator or congressperson has really taken up this issue. So this is an opportunity to gauge sentiment and build a, a base for whether or not there should be a big issue when all of these folks run again in November. Yeah, net-net, is the public harmed? Do they even know they're harmed or do they see greater value in the utility value of being on Facebook or particularly what we've seen in the last few weeks, the ability to go to somewhere like Amazon and shop when you can't go in store? That's the correct question. And current antitrust law is based on consumer harm and you have a difficult time saying that you're incurring consumer harm or prices are increasing when the product is free. I would argue that the prices we pay as parents when our teen depression is up and self-harm among young girls is up 120 percent because Facebook has no incentive to put in places to put in place any safeguards around teen depression. I would argue that if you're a small business person in the fastest growing parts of our economy are have absolutely been cauterized because they're controlled by duopolies, whether it's search, whether it's hardware, whether it's social. There hasn't been a major social network in America started since 2011 with Pinterest. Whether you are a taxpayer, your costs have gotten higher because big tech does not pay their fair share of taxes. I would argue, Julia, that the costs incurred on citizens, on parents, and on entrepreneurs has skyrocketed at the hand of these firms. We have a proud legacy of antitrust where we go in and oxygenate the market by breaking up these firms, encouraging competition, encouraging them to behave better. And the price we are paying as a commonwealth and as citizens has skyrocketed. So yes, I think this can play a critical role in helping consumers and voters understand that our economy is suffering, our commonwealth is suffering at the concentration, the increasing concentration of power across fewer and fewer firms. Jeff Bezos, he's the unknown quantity. We all get a sense of how powerful Amazon is in terms of what a 40%, probably more now, share of the e-commerce market, a far smaller, admittedly growing fraction of the overall retail market. But we've never really heard from him and we've certainly never seen him on DC, on the Capitol. Uh, what do you think we get from him today? Well, you brought up a critical point. Expect Jeff Bezos to talk about the fact that there are only four or 5% of retail. You know, how can we be a threat? But that's not really the right metric. In a in a five-week period coming out of the depths of the market in March, uh, Amazon was able to add 
add the value to their market capitalization of the world's largest company, Walmart. This is a company that has more soft power, I think, than any other entity in the world with the exception of China. He owns the Washington Post, which plays a big role in reelecting or not these individuals. He also has more lobbyists. Amazon has more lobbyists, get this, Julie, in Washington than there are sitting U.S. senators. So there is tremendous soft power. A lot of eyes on Mr. Bezos because it's the first time he's testified, but you're talking about an individual that commands the wealth of the GDP of Luxembourg and Kuwait combined, who a lot of people would argue is paying a lower tax rate than almost anybody on that stage or any of us. So there is going to be, I think, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of, if he gets fire or if he gets fawning. He's very likable, and let's be honest, this is a lot of, a lot of this comes down to likability. Expect Tim Cook to have an Auburn college football helmet in his, in, in his screenshot. Expect Jeff Bezos to talk about his mother who gave birth to him at the age of 17. This will be an attempt to be likable and to deflect any real questions. But you're right. Everyone is going to be focused on the wealthiest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. You also make the point that Amazon paid $162 million in federal tax last year. Walmart paid almost $3 billion. Someone should definitely pull that one out as well, Scott. But in their statements, in their opening statements, they're going to point that Look, they're American businesses. They actually foster innovation. They need to be protected from foreign interference at a time when everybody's looking around the world and going, actually, we do need to strengthen our own assets and our own innovation. Does any of this fly, particularly to your point about lawmakers caring about re-election? What message does sell to voters at this moment? That's the correct question, Julie. So you, you expect especially Mark Zuckerberg, to wrap himself in an American flag and create a nationalist argument that we need Facebook and we need someone of that size to fend off the Chinese apps that are coming for our children. And what we found throughout history is depending on a national champion, whether it's Air France or trying to prop up NTT, the local ja the, the Japanese telco, it almost never works. Now, if, if and when you spin a company, for example, when eBay spun PayPal, PayPal was a more robust competitor against other payment companies domestic and abroad than they were as, uh, as a larger conglomerate. So this notion, you're going to hear two words from Mark Zuckerberg over and over, tick and talk. So the correct question is, how can America remain competitive? Typically, when we break these companies up, it unlocks tremendous innovation. It unlocks tremendous upside. And, and antitrust, it's one of the few things, Julia, that we always get right, that typically taxpayers win, entrepreneurs win, uh, the shareholders of the company win. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the valuation on AWS as an independent company? There's no pure play way to play the cloud right now. So the bottom line is we don't, we don't break them up because they're bad people or some sort of, some sort of punishment. We break them up because we want to expand our tax base and we want the markets to keep roaring upward. There's only one party that loses in a breakup traditionally, and that's the CEO who wants to be on the iron throne mm. of all of Westeros, just not one of the realms. So this is good for the economy, and we break them up because we're capitalists, Julia. Yes, in this case, not better together. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for that. Professor of Marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. Always great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, Kodak's big moments, one of the most recognizable brands pivots towards pharmaceuticals. The CEO Live, next. Kodak, one of the world's most recognizable brands, is having its moment to quote one of its old slogans. Moments. Life is filled with moments just waiting. 
Kodak struggled to adapt to the digital revolution. Well, now it's being handed a $765 million loan under the U.S. Defense Production Act. Kodak will now make pharmaceutical ingredients, reducing America's dependency on foreign drug makers. Picture this. Kodak's stock soared 200% on Tuesday thanks to that deal. Right now, it's up another 150%. Its legacy of handling film puts it in a good position to work with chemicals, just like its rival Fujifilm did years ago. Jim Continenza is CEO and executive chairman of Kodak, and he joins us now. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. I don't think anyone was surprised by the decision to try and shore up supply chains for pharmaceuticals, but people saw the name Kodak and thought, hang on a second, why are you best placed to do this? Well, you know, Kodak's, <clears throat> Kodak's been in the chemical business for well over 100 years. It's the foundation of who we are. And we currently today are making unregulated KSMs, uh, key starting materials, apologize, um, for some other pharmaceuticals. So we, we're in this business, just not in a large way. And this is a chance for us to expand. And then when you look at Eastman Business Park, we have 1,200 acres. We have several facilities that we'll be putting into this entity as we build out that help lower the cost. We have our own power, steam, rail, uh, waste treatment, chemical treatment. It's just, you know, it's utilizing the park, which lowers the cost greatly. And it's doing something that's in our DNA. We've been doing for 100 years. The warehouse Chief Advisor, uh, Peter Navarro, said by the time this thing ramps up, 25% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients for generics we need in the United States are going to be going to be right at this facility. That's incredible. That's How quickly can you do that? Well, it's going to take us about three years to build out. We, we approximately three to three and a half years. But during this time, we'll still be manufacturing. We'll be manufacturing in batch manufacturing, moving to continuous manufacturing. So, so it'll be a combination of two items. And where do you see the biggest bottlenecks? You know, again, it, it'll, it'll be in the build out when we transition over from, from the batch to the uh, continuous. Um, that, that'll probably be our biggest bottleneck. Uh, but we're prepared for it. And then from there, we'll innovate and continue to get more efficiencies out of it. So there are a number of, of companies in the United States that perhaps could have handled this too. What about your relationship with the U.S. administration? Why do you think they specifically came to you guys and said, look, we're going to rely on you to build this out? Oh, candidly, I think we're the best position to do it. Again, finding another company has been in chemicals for over 100 years and has the facilities sitting there ready to go and is doing it today. Um, I, I, I would say we're probably the best suited. I know they looked at several. We weren't the only one. I can guarantee that. Um, and you'd have to, you know, again, you heard Dr. Uh, Navarro yesterday, Navarro uh, yesterday state, you know, how they made this decision. They looked at others and we are most suited and best suited to do this. How many people are you going to have to hire, Jim? No, approximately 300 up in uh, the greater area of New York. And then about 30 to 50 in Minneapolis and approximately about 1,200 indirect jobs. So we're excited to bring those jobs back to New York. It's a great area. It's a great park. And bringing those jobs back to upstate New York has been phenomenal. And, you know, Governor Cuomo has been a huge supporter over the years. And there's one of the reasons that park's even there is because of the support he's given it over the years. And just talk to me about what happened in light of COVID as well, because I know you were looking at making masks. You were looking at the screens as well. You, you sort of talked about the bipartisan push that took place here to try and help you do that. I think this is important for people to understand as well. I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm not a political and I'm a businessman. We run a company and never once, and I mean never once, did Adam Bowler's group of the uh, DFC ever once 
bring up a party, bring up anything. This is a necessity. We need to get this done. Uh, Dr. DeMauro did the same. Governor Como, how can I help? What can we do to be helpful? Um, again, this park exists because of the help of um, Senator Schumer and Governor Como over the years. And then obviously, you know, Dr. Navarro and Ed Adam, it was just, let's get this done for the American people. Your best position to do this. We need to shore up this and need to do it quick. Uh, as Dr. Navarro calls everything Trump time. And that means you do 30 days worth of work in four days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the sound of that. And that idea is exactly how this uh, Defense Production Act should be used. So we'll, we'll watch your progress. Great to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you Jim so much. Jim Continenza, CEO and executive chairman there of Kodak. All right, a new achievement for the United States top soldier in the fight against COVID-19. A run on Dr. Anthony Fauci's baseball card is proving his status as an American icon. We'll take a look after this break. Welcome back to First Move. Dr. Fauci has risen to cult status here in the United States. Well, now he's even been pictured on his very own baseball card. It's become the best-selling card ever for Topps Limited Edition Series. The card shows him mid-pitch during that terrible, I'm not judging, throw before the Washington Nationals season opener. But his fans clearly don't care how bad that was. They snatched up more than 51,000 of his cards in just 24 hours. Yes, better than I could do. That's all I could say. All right, in two hours' time, the CEOs of Apple, Facebook, Alphabet and Amazon will testify to Congress on their dominance of the tech industry via video conference. We should expect some fireworks. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos has never testified to lawmakers before. Facebook continuingly under fire over fact-checking and hate speech ahead of the presidential election here in the United States. Apple and Alphabet both stand accused of exercising monopolistic powers. All four companies will argue that they play a key role in the U.S. economy and represent American values in the face of rising Chinese competition. Stay with CNN for full coverage of this historic event across all platforms coming up from 12 p. Eastern. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chastely. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.